Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the privilege and the opportunity of gathering ourselves together here. We thank you for this beautiful campground meeting place. Again, thanking you for the many people that took the time, put in the effort, spent the money, just everything that it took for a lot of people to get here. Father, we are thankful that they were willing to come to fellowship together with us, to open your word, to grow in grace and truth. It is our prayer that by the Spirit of God, using the sword of truth, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be magnified and glorified, not just publicly and not just outwardly among us, but inwardly as we are more and more transformed into his image. So guide us as we open your word today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I have to read you a letter, and I wish every pastor in the country would read this to their church. This is a letter from Dr. John MacArthur to Gavin Newsom. How many of you have, have seen this? Have you read it? Every pastor ought to read this. You know, I can disagree with him on his Calvinism, but I will say one thing. He is a man of courage and he's paid a price to stay faithful to the Lord. And uh, the state of California has done everything but throw him in jail and that may be coming yet. Here's his letter to Gavin Newsom. Sir, Almighty God says in his word, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14, 34. Scripture also teaches that it is the chief duty of any civic leader to reward those who do well and to punish evildoers, Romans 13, 1 through 7. You have not only failed in that responsibility, you routinely turn it on its head, rewarding evildoers and punishing the righteous. The Word of God pronounces judgment on those who call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5:20. And yet many of your policies reflect this unholy, upside-down view of honor and morality. The diabolical effects of your worldview are evident in the statistics of California's epidemics of crime, homelessness, sexual perversions like homosexuality and trans transgenderism, and other malignant expressions of human misery that stem directly from corrupt public policy. I don't need to itemize or elaborate on the many immoral decisions uh, that you have made and perpetrated against God and against the people of our state, which have only exacerbated these problems. Nevertheless, my goal in writing is not to contend with your politics, but rather to plead with you to hear and heed what the Word of God says to men in your position. Let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him, Psalm 72, 11. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, 2 Samuel 23, 3 and 4. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness, Proverbs 16, 12. What God said to Cyrus is a truth that you should take to heart, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6. In mid-September you revealed to the entire nation how thoroughly rebellious against God you are 
when you sponsored billboards across America promoting the slaughter of children whom he creates in the womb. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, Isaiah 45, 9 through 12. You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy, quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12 and verse 31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You use the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Molech, Leviticus 21 through five. It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. Furthermore, you chose words from the lips of Jesus without admitting that in the same moment he gave the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, Mark 12, Verse 30, you cannot love God as he commands while abiding in the, uh, while aiding in the murder of his image bearers, Psalm 50, verses 16 to 19. This Psalm speaks to people who pervert the word of God for their own sinful ends. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, you cast my words behind you, when you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil and you harness your tongue for deceit. My concern, Gavin and Newsom, is that your own soul lies in grave eternal peril. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God, Paul says in Romans 14 and verse 12. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge, and he will demand that you give an account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you have twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of you and see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery, the just punishment for your sins, what will all the clever rationalizations and political talking points avail you, avail for you then? And by then it will be too late for any remedy or redemption. Hebrews 10.31 says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that that you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. In Psalm 50, after rebuking the wicked for uttering God's words in a profane way, the scripture makes this promise. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me and he who orders his way I will show the salvation of God, Psalm 50, verses 22 and 23. So there is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and trust fully in him as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel, forsake the path of wickedness, that you have pursued all your life, turn to Christ, ask for forgiveness, and use your office to advance the cause of righteousness as is your duty instead of undermining it as has been your pattern. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Governor Newsom, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Signed for the master, John MacArthur. The day is coming, the stage is being set, the plans are already in place for the arrest of people who think like you and I think. America is about to become a place of great persecution. We have political prisoners. Who would have ever thought in the United States of America that to think differently than those in power would be sufficient to put you in prison, to violate all constitutional standards, to rob you of all of your rights, to deny you a quick and a fair trial, and again, to pervert justice uh, to the nth degree. But that's where we are. But all of this has an end game. There is a goal in mind. And the goal in mind is to establish a pattern that becomes acceptable in the minds of the people so that when the day comes that you and I are arrested and imprisoned for wrong thinking, in other words, because we don't accept their wrong thinking, uh, we are going to end up in prison. So we need to prepare ourselves and equip ourselves uh, for the time that is ahead. We're going to begin in Psalm 27. If you'll open your Bibles there, one of the truly, truly great Psalms of David. And again, the purpose of our gathering together is to do some character studies, or we could really call them vignettes. That's big nets for those of you who are rednecks. <laughs> Because obviously the scope is far too great for us to be able to go into a lot of detail. Uh, it would take more than an hour of time uh, to do any one of these studies if we were to go into all the detail, look up all of the passages and everything else. What my hope is and my goal is to set light against darkness to show the difference between the character of Christ and the character of unregenerate evil. <clears throat> to use different people, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> in the orbit of David who reflected either good or bad. And so <coughs> the enemy getting to me here. You know, some pastors keep a glass down here, but it's not water. <laughs> it does help the throat, I can testify. Thank you, Aaron. Ann came all the way here from Kansas, so we're glad to have Ann here. 
So when we look at contrast, contrast always helps us to see things more clearly. Um, when you look at one thing, you may understand or identify what it is, what its nature is, what its characteristics are, but the focus always becomes more clear as you look at the contrast. So we're looking at contrasting characteristics and the emphasis really of all of our time together is character. And as I gave you the quote last night from Billy Graham, if wealth is lost, nothing is lost. If health is lost, something is lost. But if character is lost, all is lost. And I hope that each and every one of us, as we look at good character, right character, godly character, Christ-like character, as opposed to its opposite, we should be evaluating ourselves. We should be asking ourselves, do I have that character that made it possible for Samuel to stand in front of a nation and say, if I have done anything wrong, taken anything that was not mine, allowed any bribe to pervert my judgment, tell me now. What a goal it would be for every pastor to be able to stand in front of his group and say, if you have found genuine fault, of course, the reason pastors don't do it is because everybody has a grudge, right? You'll always do something that'll set them off. You shouldn't have done this, that, or something else. So we're not gonna play that game. Uh, husbands, you can play it with your wife. <laughs> but the goal is to look at each one of these characteristics and genuinely ask ourselves as we look at the Word of God. You know, the Word of God is a two-way mirror. And Scripture tells us this in 2 Corinthians 3, and James uses the same illustration, that we look into a mirror. And as we look into this mirror, the first thing that we see is what God intends us to be in Christ. That is what is expressed, what is communicated to us. But then we also see the other side, and it's, it's kind of a Jekyll and a, and a Hyde thing because this is the standard that I should be aiming at and living up to, and here is my life. And we should not be afraid to look at both of those portraits, both of those pictures, or both of those reflections, and say, here is the goal, here is the standard, here is where God is pointing and leading me, and this is where I am on the journey. Not for the purpose of beating ourselves down, not for the purpose of groveling over our failures, but for the purpose of saying, here's where I am in the journey, I know the direction I'm supposed to, to be going, and therefore I'm going to, as Paul says in the book of Philippians in the third chapter, not as if I have already attained either that I am already perfect, but this one thing I do. Friends, if I can send you out of here with one thing to do, follow Paul. This one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, victories and failures, dwelling on either of them isn't gonna help you. Forgetting the things that are behind and looking forward to what is ahead, I press on. The picture is of a runner and he's nearing the end of the race and you see the finish line and you're pressing toward the tape. And that was what drove the Apostle Paul and it kept him motivated, it kept him focused, it kept him from distractions. You know why Satan is, finds it so easy to uh, distract us? We become idle. We become idle. 
We're in neutral. We're standing still. I learned a lesson when I was in Brazil in 1967, and we were shooting the rapids on the Padu River. Uh, the river falls so rapidly that there are uh, extreme rapids about every 100 to 200 yards. And we're shooting these rapids in dugout canoes, which are not the most balanced craft that you can imagine, I can tell you. And the chief's son, Alenka, said to me through the missionary I was with, Ed Kane, as my translator, and he said, you can only steer the canoe if you're moving faster than the water. We talked last night about divine guidance. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. But again, you can't steer a ship that's not moving. I've seen so many believers through the years and they're trying to make a decision. Does God want me to go this way? Does God want me to go this way? And they're standing there and they always remind me of Dorothy in, not Dorothy, who's the, with the Cheshire cat? Alice. Alice, there we go. I get my girls mixed up. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland comes to the end of the road and there's a split in the road and she looks left, looks right, looks left, looks right, doesn't know where to go and starts crying. I don't know where to go. Cheshire cat sitting up in the tree says, what are you crying about, little girl? I don't know where to go. Cheshire Cat says, where do you want to get to? And she says, I don't know. And he says, then it doesn't matter much, does it? <laughs> you know, with a lot of believers, it really doesn't matter much. Because if you're not focused and if you don't know where you're going, if you don't know the end destination, you've ceased to be a victor and you become a victim. A victim of your own bad decisions. Victors know where they're heading. Paul was victorious because he knew the goal that was in front of him. We better get started or class time's gonna be over and we won't even have started class. Psalm 27. I'm gonna read this entire psalm. By the way, every area of divine essence is in this psalm. The sovereignty of God is seen. The righteousness and the justice of God, the love of God is seen. The eternal nature of God is seen. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, immutability, veracity, and the one quality and characteristic of the essence of God that I can't find in any theological book that I've ever read, and believe me, I've read a bunch of them. Just come to my house and look at the books, or if you don't want to waste your time, talk to Nan. She'll tell you, we're about to move out of my house because the books are taken over. <laughs> because that's my life. My life is gathering information. But I have never seen in a single theological book this quality of God, humility. We just talked about it this morning. Michael led us in a study uh, in the first 11 verses of Philippians, and we talked about the humility of Christ, the humility of God. You know, we would have our theology a little bit more straight if instead of talking about the sovereignty of God overwhelming the decisions of man, we realize that God gave Adam sovereignty and therefore we need to understand a little bit about the sovereignty of God because when you get to the end of your life, you can't blame him for the direction that you took. We made choices. The greatest God-like quality that God gave to you and I is the power of choice, the power to choose. 
And Michael, I love the way you put it. You can't change your heart, but you can change your mind. God can change your heart, but he won't change your mind. That was one of the most brilliant statements. I was looking for a pen to write it down, but I'll remember it. So here we go in Psalm 27. David here is speaking. And what we want to think about is courage versus cowardice. Courage versus cowardice. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me, eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. I would encourage you to engrave Psalm 27 on your heart because it's about to be tested. It's about to be tested in ways we have never been tested before. Verse six, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy. There you go back to the book of Philippians. In his tabernacle, I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face I will seek. Simple, humble obedience. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. By the way, that actually happened to him. What was he as a boy? When Samuel called for him, he couldn't have been over between 13 and 15 years old when he was anointed. Where was he? He was with a sheep. Do you know how shepherds were trained in the ancient world? The older shepherds would take the boy and usually it was the one that they thought would never succeed. I was voted the least likely to succeed in all of my classes. They would take the one that they thought wasn't worth much and make that the shepherd of the family. And at about the age five, they were taken with the older shepherds to the sheepfolds and they were given a lamb. And their job was to take care of that lamb. And so everywhere that lamb went, that child, sometimes shepherds were girls, as we see in the Old Testament, usually a boy, but that, that child had to follow that lamb. And wherever that lamb went, it was the job of that boy to make sure that that lamb was safe. And they spent years and years learning from the older shepherds learning how to use the tools of guidance for the sheep, the staff, learning to use the weapons of defense for the sheep, the sling and the rod. And that's how David became an expert and he excelled in that education. And he became a preview of the great shepherd, the good shepherd and the chief shepherd that our Lord Jesus Christ came to be for us. My father and my mother forsook me. I'm sure he felt that many times as a little boy in the heat, in the cold, in the dark of the night, laboring at a very harsh means of existence. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path 
because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me. You know, one of the most painful attacks you can ever be under is when you're under false accusation. You know, false accusation, you have no defense. The best thing to do is remain silent. The more you try to defend yourself, the more people believe the false accusations. Believe me, I've been there. Verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Strongest word of the five Hebrew words for faith is the word wait. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. I wish I could show you my Bible because this Bible has for 15 years or so traveled with me all around the world. And I always find it interesting because as I go through the Psalms, I write where I am and here I have Nagaland. Well, first, I am waiting on you the uh, 28th of December in 2009. And then next to it, I have again from Nagaland in 2015. So those little things just remind me where I was as I read that passage and I can kind of recapture the situations and the circumstances that I was in. Courage. This is what we want to get out of this. Courage because of confidence in God. Get this in your mind. If you have confidence in God, you will have courage before men. Courage isn't something you work up. Courage is something that develops as a discipline over time. How can we learn courage? Do things that scare you. Be willing to face the tough issues of life. When you have to go talk to that person and you just don't want to talk to them, face up to it and just do it now. Do it immediately. When you have a fight in your marriage and you don't want to be the one, and guys, we are most guilty of this, we don't want to go and say, I was wrong, forgive me. You need to learn to do that. You need to learn to acknowledge when your attitude, your uh, words, and by the way, and I think all the ladies here will agree with me, the thing that hurts the ladies the most are the words. The abuse of harsh, unthoughtful, unkind words uh, can be worse than a beating with a stick, really. So again, I'm off on a rabbit trail. I'm going to shoot that one. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 17. Courage versus cowardice. We've seen a little bit of Saul last night. We've seen a little bit of his gradual spiritual decline. He made choices which produced actions that brought about consequences. And folks, here's the thing we need to understand. I especially say this to young people. Your attitude is going to produce your priorities and your priorities are going to guide your decisions and your decisions are going to have consequences whether you like it or not. And every good decision is going to bring a lifetime of good results and every bad decision, and some decisions are more important than others, every bad decision is going to bring bad results. Now think about a person who makes one bad decision after another and they start having what I call a backlog of evil because when you sow and you reap what you sow, 
The rule of reaping, you always reap much more than you sowed, and you always reap much later than you sowed. And so those bad decisions that you think you're getting away with are building up like a tidal wave, and they're getting ready to crash down on your head. You cannot escape reality. Reality is what is, not what I think is or how I like to think. A lot of people, if you ask them if they believe in God, yes, I believe in God. My God is a God of love. Oh, that's nice. Mine is too. Is your God also a God of judgment and justice? Oh, no, no, no. Well, you can develop an opinion about God, but it doesn't change the reality of the God that we serve. And so these bad decisions begin to eat away at the soul and they begin to bring, not only are you decaying internally, but they're developing consequences that are building and building and building and one day they're gonna come down on your head. That happened to Saul on Mount Gilboa. He never saw it coming because he was blind. Anyone with spiritual vision would have been able to tell him, you are heading for destruction. You're on your way to a doom that is more horrible than you can even imagine. It was so bad on Mount Gilboa that Saul fell on his own sword, couldn't even commit suicide right, is laying there mortally wounded and asked a fellow soldier to kill him so he wouldn't have to face defeat. That's the act of a coward. That's the act of a victim. And so with the corrosion of his soul in full swing, we read in 1 Samuel 17 about the gathering of the Philistines. The Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. They were gathered at Succoth. Some of us have been standing in the place where this happened, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Succoth and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they were encamped in the valley of Elah and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. I'll just break some of this down for you. His bronze helmet weighed something like 17 pounds. Those of you that have been in the military, imagine wearing a helmet like that. He was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. I forget exactly the translation of that. He had bronze armor on his legs. The whole point is this guy was terrifying. Most Bible commentators put him at nine feet tall. You need to understand that there are two different measure, measurements that are called a cubit, and they all choose the smaller measurement because they can't imagine a guy even being over nine feet tall. I believe his actual height was closer to 15. The guy was a true giant. Think of that beam right there. This guy is terrifying. Verse 8 says, he stood and cried to the armies of Israel and said, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down and fight. The idea is rather than the two armies coming together and a whole bunch of people getting slaughtered, let's just solve it with two champions. And that actually was a means of resolving conflicts in the ancient world. 
Verse 10, the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight. <coughs> when Saul and all Israel heard these words, I want you to get this. They were dismayed and they were terrified. Dismayed, in other words, totally defeated mentally and terrified. David comes on the scene. I'm going to skip over part of this, but in verse 12, David, the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. The man was old, advanced in years. Three of the oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of the three sons that went to the battle, I want you to remember this. These guys are named in the Bible their names are going to remain in the Bible throughout all eternity, and everyone is going to know exactly the cowardice that they displayed. It's going to be the same for you and I. You're writing a book. You're writing a story every day. You can't write the story for someone else. You can only write your story. And every day, every decision that we make is being written down. You know, the Bible talks about a library in heaven. One of those books is going to be the book of the lives of those who are believers. Your story is going to be there. My story is going to be there. What kind of a story will it be? Now, God uh, is very gracious, and uh, hopefully all of our sins are not going to be recorded in the story, but just ask yourself this question. If God only wrote the parts in my story where I did what he wanted me to do, would it be more than a sentence? Would it be a paragraph? Would it be a pamphlet? Or would it be a big, bold story? So little of David's life is even recorded. But here's Eliab and Abinadab and Shema. You know what they were? They were terrified along with the rest of the army. Saul, the guy that should have taken on himself the responsibility to go and meet the giant, even if he died, how much more glorious would his life have been if he stepped out there with boldness and said, I'll take on the giant and at least given an example of courage to his entire army, if he stepped out there and died, he would have died a hero instead of dying as a coward on Mount Gilboa. David was the youngest, we're told in verse 14. The three oldest followed Saul. David went and returned from Saul. You remember he was playing the harp for him because of his demon oppression to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. And I'm going to skip over some of this story. Jesse sends David to the battlefront to take food to his brothers and to Saul. David rose early in the morning. Do you see the obedience here? Go to your brothers. He doesn't sleep in. It's not 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock when he climbs out of bed. Like it is later, we'll see it tomorrow or maybe this afternoon when he wakes up in the afternoon and goes out on the rooftop. We'll see that story. It's coming up. David's obedient. In verse 26, he sees, verse 25, he sees the giant defying the armies of Israel. David spoke to the men 
that stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? I wish every believer in the United States of America was willing to pay the price to defy the enemy instead of bowing to a tyrannical system of government that is in place right now. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of Saul? No? Well, you have a different Bible or what? I do that, by the way, to find out if you're listening. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I mentioned last night, and it will come up again tomorrow, objectivity versus subjectivity, and subjectivity filters everything that's going on around you through the lens of moi. How does it affect me? How do I feel about this? Fear is a subjective response. We all feel it. We all know it. Courage is not the absence of fear. The thing that makes courage courage is the willingness to do the right thing and ignore the fear. People answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be done for the man that kills him, verse 27. Now I want you to notice because David, and this is very important, and I know it's about lunchtime and I'm going to have to quit and I'm not even done with this study, but this study is probably the heart of the whole thing. David has to fight three battles and win three victories before he faces Goliath. Do you know why we fail? We fail because we set ourselves up for failure. Have you ever heard of a guy named Sun Tzu? Believe it or not, I was in China and we were there to do a mission and we were not able to go to the area that we were supposed to go because there was fighting going on among the people. And we gathered in this little Chinese restaurant in a second story and all these pastors are gathered around and they're all gloomy and depressed and they said, oh, we're so sorry you and your wife spent all this money to come over here and that first trip over, I could tell you so many interesting things, but again, rabbit trails. And they're apologizing. You've come all this way, spent all this money, and there's nothing for us to do. And I looked at him and I said, God did not bring us here by accident. I said, do you guys know a, a man by the name of Sun Tzu? I thought they'd all know Sun Tzu, the greatest military strategist maybe of history, next to David. They hadn't heard of him. That's what happens when you lose your history. You lose your history, you lose your identity, you lose your identity, you lose the battle. Sun Tzu, I said, let me give you a quote from Sun Tzu. You ready for it? This will change your whole life if you learn to do it. Flow like water. Huh? Flow like water. What's water do when it comes to a boulder? It doesn't sit there and wham, 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 I can't go anywhere. It goes around it. In our military, it's called maneuver warfare. Where did they get the idea? Sun Tzu. It was used a lot in the first Iraq war. 
You remember when they were shooting past all of those little pockets of resistance and they were just going between them? And I remember the commentators coming on the news and saying, this is terrible. They're leaving the enemy behind them. They're not going to be able to do anything. No, you go past the tail and you hit the snake and take his head off. Flow like water. So I said to these guys, flow like water. And they said, what do you mean? I said, if we can't go there, where can we go? One guy said, oh, I've got a friend up in Tibet. I said, call him up. Called the guy up and said, would you like to have someone come up and teach your people? Next thing we know, we're on a three-day road trip with 15 Bible students with a disciple of Chairman Mao, who I'm happy to report, finally came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a story in itself. And we end up on the border of Tibet teaching Bible class. Flow like water. David understood the principle. But again, he had to fight several battles. So, David behaved, uh, what have I just missed my place here? Verse 28. I'm going to give you this one. We're going to break for lunch. His first battle. Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. Why? Envy. Because he's terrified, and his little scrawny stripling brother isn't afraid. And I mean, that could only be because of arrogance, right? And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Like you never take care of the sheep properly. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. You came to see the big guys like me. You know all these guys that everything's tactical? They'll be the first ones gone. They got the tactical pants. They wear the tactical. They got to have the sunglasses, the proper tactical sunglasses. You know, and they wear the tactical boots. And they got the great gear. I'll give you another quote from a guy named Louis Auerbach. Anybody ever heard of Louis Auerbach? Out past Chino, there's a training facility that you probably all know of called Gunsight Academy. I've been through it. Others here have as well. One of the guys that used to be one of their trainers was Louis Auerbach. Here's his quote, and I'll leave you with this to chew on because this is a battle David had to win against his older brother. Louis Auerbach said, the last man standing is going to be a little scrawny guy wearing tennis shoes and shorts and a t-shirt with a Mauser 98 bolt-action rifle. And at his feet are going to be all the cool tactical guys with all their gear, and he'll be the last man standing. Because it's not the tool. It's the guy behind the tool. David is the guy behind the weapon, and he knew how to use it. Let's pray. We're going to break for lunch, and we'll pick it up here. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you, Father, for your word. 
how much it helps us reorient to reality. This is the ultimate reality right here in your book. And we get distracted by what we think, by our pride, by how we feel. But your word always brings us back to reality. And if we only are open enough and humble enough and dependent on the Spirit of God enough to open the pages of this book, we don't have to be a theologian. In fact, Jesus said, if you really want to excel, be like a little child. He who is as a little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So help us to have that childlike faith, that humble dependence and reliance on the spirit as we open your word and continue through the afternoon and into tomorrow and teach us the things that you would have us to know and understand. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.